to serve you, to worship you, to praise you, and to give you the honor in our lives. We come, Lord, because we love one another as well. And we thank you for the camaraderie that we have in this fellowship. It's just so sweet. And, Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for the Word of God and how it just changes our lives. It literally changes our lives when we allow it to. And we pray today that it would do so as you anoint your special servant, Catherine. And as she speaks, I pray that you would give her strength and clarity. Um, a mind that is focused on you, Lord, and that the circumstances of all of our lives would be closed outside the doors so that we might focus on you today and in this place, in this moment. And we'll give you the praise and the honor for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome. Turn the light on. Okay, I don't have a whole lot of a voice today, so I hope you'll be able to hear me fine. I do really sound like a man today. I usually sound like a man anyway, but today I really sound like a man. (laughs) I told somebody that the last few times I've answered the phone, it's so embarrassing because the person on the other end always goes, Frank? (laughs) I know. I guess it's a good thing that I have a deep voice because it is easier to listen to, isn't it? The older I get, the deeper it gets. I don't know what I'm going to wind up with. As long as I don't start growing a beard, it'll be okay. (laughs) I know, I know. Oh, boy. Anyway, I I appreciate you bearing with me um, with the voice situation. And also, if if my mental, if my mind goes, just bear with me. I've had a really rough week. Um, some family members are starting to really show their carnal natures, and it, it, yesterday in particular was very bad. I had missionaries stayed with us this weekend, and that was a blessing. It was wonderful, but I, I put off things for Monday. I was going to really, you know, get to this lesson and edit the tape and everything on Monday, and then, boy, I should not have checked my email yesterday morning because it was pretty bad. So just pray, pray for me. Uh, yeah, it was really Satan. It really, there's no doubt about it, it was Satan. Anyway, let's get into our lesson. We're going to try to cover the whole chapter 35, and then uh, this will essentially end our Life of Jacob study. I'm not going to really teach Genesis chapter 36, because it's all about Esau, and we're, we're doing this year a study was the Life of Jacob. So this will be our conclusion to the Life of Jacob. And then uh, you pray with me this summer about what we're going to do next year. I am not positive that I'm going to go on and teach the life of Joseph. I may or may not. I just need the Lord's guidance. Um, I might want to come back to Joseph some other time and get on to something else. But just pray with me about that. I really want to know what the Lord wants me to do. Okay. um, Jacob's family had most tragically sunk to the level of the immoral and sordid society around them. Rather than lifting the Canaanites from the idolatry in which they were deeply entrenched, Jacob had permitted, and we'll see this in our lesson this morning, he had permitted those false gods to even penetrate into his own camp. Rather than being a blessing to the lost people of the land, which was what, you know, the descendants of Abraham were to be. Back in chapter 12, verse 3, God said that they were to be a blessing to all the other nations. But rather than being a blessing to the lost people of the land of Canaan, who desperately needed to see Jacob and his family as being holy and pure so that they were drawn 
to their God, the one and only true and living God. Instead of that, the Israelites had become a curse to these people around them. According to Jacob's own words over in chapter 34, verse 30, they actually stunk up the place. And they were hated with a passion because of the Shechem massacre and the looting which had been performed by his own sons. His daughter, you remember we looked at this last week, his daughter Dinah had been defiled and his sons had become deceivers and murderers and looters. But the worst part of all was that Jacob himself was responsible for all of that. He had been back in the promised land some nine or ten years, and yet he had not fulfilled his vow to God concerning a place called what? Bethel. He, if you remember, he had promised God that he would build God a place of worship in Bethel when and if God brought him back safely to the promised land. Well, God had fulfilled his end of the agreement. But although, now listen to this, although Bethel was only 15 miles south 15 miles, I mean, I come further than that to come to Bible study. (laughs) No, I don't walk, but I could in a day. I could walk 15 miles in a day. It was only 15 miles south of Shechem, and yet Jacob had never gone there to keep his vow. That's pretty bad. Ten years and he hadn't gone those 15 miles. Furthermore, if you remember at Penuel or Peniel, Jacob had had an even fresher experience with the Lord. He had actually touched the Lord. You know, he had wrestled all night with the Lord. He had beheld the Lord face to face. So you would think that after that experience, which had been 10 years earlier, approximately, that he wouldn't, you know, be able to get to Bethel fast enough in order to set up that worship center for the Lord. But as we learned, that was not the case. He settled for a while, first of all, in the very fertile land near uh, Sukkoth. And then, and he actually built a house there, so he was there for some time. And then he picked up, and instead of going to Bethel, where did he pitch his tent? Near to the, wick, near to the wicked city of Shechem. And for his, and he stayed there even longer than he had stayed in Sukkoth. So for his disobedience in not having gone back to Bethel many years earlier, he reaped a very heavy price. When we closed our lesson last week, we found that it had come time for Jacob <clears throat> to face up to his failures. He had probably, at the end, remember his two sons said should... Should he, meaning um, Shechem the prince who had defiled their sister, they said, should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? Well, that question apparently really convicted Jacob. So he had probably, he didn't answer it. He He probably went to the altar that he had built there in Shechem and must have cried out in anguish to the Lord. The good news is that although Jacob had been disobedient and careless in, you know, in many respects, as both a father and as a leader of God's chosen nation. Yet, the good news is that God had not forgotten him. And God had not forgotten his promises to Jacob. Isn't it wonderful that regardless of how many times God's children fail him, he, he never fails, does he? He is always there. He will always come along and encourage us to pick ourselves up from where we last left 
the straight and narrow walk with him, and he will encourage us and help us and strengthen us to get back on track. Jacob knew that Bethel was God's appointed place for him, but he had delayed and he had detoured. Do we do that sometimes? Unfortunately, we do all the time. We know what God's will is, but we delay, we put it off, or we go on this little detour, that little detour. But, you know, the good news, another good news is that as Christ told the, uh, the church of Ephesus, you know, when they had fallen from their first love, he told them to do three, three things to get back on track. He said, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and do what? Repent, and then do. I call those the three R's. Remember where you last went off track with the Lord. Then repent of that and then redo what? The first works. The things that you had done at the beginning when you were in wonderful fellowship with the Lord. That's exactly what Jacob needed to do. He needed to remember where he'd gotten off track and repent of that and then go back and redo. So what was it time for him to do? To return to Bethel, to go back to Bethel. And uh, that's what our title for our lesson is on chapter 35, Back to Bethel. We're going to look at three main outline divisions of Jake. Basically, they are um, Jacob's travels. We're going to see him pack up and go from Shechem to Bethel, which is good. That's great. He's finally getting back on track. Then we're going to actually watch what he does while he's at Bethel. And then thirdly, he packs up everything once again. And gets back on the road. This time he goes from Bethel to Hebron. Does anybody know why he might go to Hebron? Right. That's where his father lives. So he's going to spend those last years with his father. So that's where we're going. We're going to start with the first part from Shechem to Bethel. And under this section, we're going to look first of all at the preparation for him to go to Bethel. And then we'll look at his protection on his way to Bethel. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 to 4. Chapter 35, verses 1 to 4, Jacob's preparation for Bethel. It says, And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God, that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household, household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel. You know, whenever you're going to be going right with the Lord, it's interesting in the scripture how many times it'll say, go up. And when you're going away from the Lord, it'll say, go down. Like when Jonah went down to uh, Joppa. It's just interesting. So he's to go up. Well, literally it was up, by the way. Bethel was 15 minutes, I mean 15 minutes, 15 miles south of Shechem, but it was straight up because it was an elevation from Shechem. It was a thousand miles higher. So it literally was going up to Bethel. But he says in verse 3, Let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, finally. <laughs> Who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. And they, that's his household, gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears. That's interesting, isn't it? And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. 
Okay, we'll stop right there. At this critical and desperate time in Jacob's life, when not only had his children gone astray, but he feared for his very existence. If you remember back in verse 30 of the last chapter, he was fearing for his existence due to a possible retaliation by the Canaanites and the Perizzites. You know, they weren't very happy about his sons murdering all the men of Shechem. Uh, So this was a critical, desperate time for him. During this time, I think he went to the altar and the Lord spoke to him in grace, not in judgment. This might have been a really good time for the Lord to shake his finger in Jacob's face and say, naughty boy, you're going to have to live with the consequences of having been a poor father and not have fulfilled your vow. But God didn't do that. He spoke to him in grace. And that fact right there is absolutely amazing about our God. God is most certainly long-suffering with us, isn't he? Very, very long-suffering, and he is very forgiving with those who belong to him. He told Jacob, in effect, three things to do, and they all really, uh, they begin with the letter A. The other things begin with R, these all begin with A. He was to, what, arise and go up. Where was he to go up to? Bethel. Secondly... He was to abide there for a while, you know, and he was to, when he was abiding there, what was he to build? An altar. So he was to arise, abide, and build an altar. Three A's. And God then reminded Jacob of his encounter with him at Bethel some 30 years earlier when he had been in another time of distress. And what was his distress about that time? fleeing from his brother Esau who wanted to murder him. So that reminder of another time of of, danger of death was in order to relieve Jacob's fear over his current situation because once again he is in fear of the danger of death from from the uh, Canaanites and the Perizzites. If God could deliver him from Esau he certainly could also deliver him from the Canaanites and the Perizzites. His, Jacob's place of peace and promised protection had come to him at the place of Bethel. So God was telling him it was time to arise and go back there and abide there and then fulfill his vow to God, you know, concerning the building of an altar there. So essentially what he was saying to Jacob is come out from among them. You know, you have no business being with the worldly people down here in Shechem. Come out from among them and be ye separate and go up to Bethel, the house of God. So it's, it's wonderfully refreshing now to finally see Jacob once again take the reins of leadership in the rest of this chapter. He had been revived in his spirit by God's word. How are we revived in our spirit? Same way, by God's word. God spoke to him and he had a revival. And he was ready to see revival now spread throughout his whole encampment. So he got his household together to share God's message with them. And then he also wanted to share with his household, including his family. And who else would be included? Not only his servants and his family, but remember all those women and children which they had taken captive from Shechem. So they are now part of Jacob's encampment. And uh, he wants to share with them his own plan to obey God's message 
to go to Bethel and make God an altar there. So he's having a testimony, finally, you know, before his family and, and um, friends and servants, and also before all these unsaved pagan Shechemite women and children. However, before they could begin their journey to Bethel to worship the true and living God, some preparation work needed to be done. First of all, Jacob's camp needed a serious consecration to God. The Lord does not tolerate divided devotion. He is a jealous God. You know, no man can serve two masters. Uh, going to Bethel to build an altar for the worship of Jehovah God would not allow for any idols. And Jacob had been, and this is sad, but he had been very lax in allowing strange gods to be tolerated in his household. And those idols may have included the ones that Rachel had brought with her from her father Laban's house up in Haran. You know, we really don't know what she ever did with those gods. She may have buried them along the way, but for all we know, she still had them hiding somewhere under her saddlebag in her tent. I don't know. So they may have included those gods. Um, definitely would have included some of the false gods of some of his servants and probably would have included a good number of foreign gods which had been taken in the looting of Shechem. And with the presence of idolatry in the camp, revival in Bethel, up in Bethel, could not occur. So for his own sake and for the sake of his family and for the sake of his household and for the sake of the future of, of all of his descendants, you know, the nation of Israel, it was essential that Jacob, whose name was turned to Israel, that he put away the idols which had slipped in among them and then, you know, come back clean before God. In addition to putting away the strange gods, Jacob also commanded his household to do what? Look at verse 2. Put away the strange gods that are among you and then do what? Be clean and change your garments. They were to cleanse themselves. Uh, they were to, you know, literally scrub themselves clean and even put on new clean garments. This was in order to symbolize a new beginning. Sin defiles, right? And just like dirt, it needs to be washed away. The old garments of the people represented their old life. You know, with all of its failures and all of its tendencies to hang on to some of the false gods, to some of the superstitions, to some of the practices and beliefs of the world around them. They were to put off all those things and put on, you know, the Lord God to take off their old life and put on their brand new life. God in his mercy gives the believer new garments you know, garments of righteousness that are really his sons so that we can begin brand new, have a brand new start. You know, basically we're born again, right? Have a brand new beginning. So not only were the people to put away their false gods, but they were to purge their hearts of all sin. They were to put both idols and sin out of their lives. And all of this symbolizes, in effect, the putting off of the old life of sin and the putting on of the new life of godliness. Well, the, the good news, we have a lot of good news in this chapter, is that the family and the household of Jacob obeyed his words, 
which came from God. They obeyed them. In verse 4, we're told that they gave unto Jacob not only all of their strange gods, which were in their hands, but also what? All of their earrings. Now, you'd say, well, that's kind of strange. Why would I have to give him my earrings? (laughs) I don't worship these. But their earrings in that day... Um, or probably a lot of their earrings. I'm not saying all of the women or, or men. I don't even know if the men did wear earrings. Maybe they did. But th- they, were, they were pieces of jewelry, in many cases, which were either symbols of worldliness or idolatry, par- probably amulets. They were probably little miniature gods, you know, hanging from their ears. So the family and the household of Jacob obviously realized uh, the serious danger that they were in from all the surrounding peoples, you know, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, who were very angry about the massacre and the looting of nearby Shechem. So they were willing to listen to Jacob who had just heard from God. They're willing to do this. They knew of their danger. So they were willing to seek God and ask for his forgiveness and his protection. They needed his protection, his deliverance. They knew that they were far fewer in numbers than their surrounding neighbors, and it was going to take supernatural help to get them safely out of there. So they were only all too willing to leave and to climb the 1,000... Um, feet up to Bethel. They knew that sin had brought great trouble upon all of them and the only hope for deliverance for them was to put sin out of their lives, you know, to be obedient to God and then seek God for revival with all of their hearts and all of their minds and all of their souls and, you know, pray then that he would protect them. So they gave him all their idols, they gave him all their amulets, their earrings, and he took all of that. And where did he bury it? Under the oak, which was by Shechem. I am sure that people who've read the, who read the Bible a long, long time ago went to every oak tree they could find in Shechem and, you know, looking for the buried treasure because it was probably worth a whole lot. So I don't imagine it's still there. There's a lot of burials in this chapter, by the way. You'll see. This is the first one, burying the idols. And then there's going to be a burial of Deborah and then a burial of Rachel and then a burial of Isaac. So there's a lot of burials. Well, as we look at Jacob, we might think in our hearts how shameful and disgraceful it was for one of the honored patriarchs from whom the Messiah would come for him to have allowed the presence of idolatry in his own camp. I mean, wow, that's pretty amazing. He should be ashamed of himself. And he even drifted from the living Lord who he had seen and talked to. However, what we need to remember is that more often than we would like to admit, we do precisely the same thing. David Roper and Dot Fulford, you're the one who gave me that little book on Jacob, which I need to give back to you, but I have really enjoyed that little book on Jacob. It's the one that's called Jacob the Fool's God Chooses. Does God choose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise? Yes, I'm a living example of that, but that's a cute title. Jacob the Fool's God Chooses. Well, he says this, quote, We, like Jacob, drift away from God gradually and unconsciously. The tide of culture, or our society, carries us away from godly influences. We lose our desire to sit at Jesus' feet. 
our delight to meet him in the word fades. We find ourselves lapsing into old idolatries. Our idolatry is often more subtle and difficult to detect. A strange focus on someone or something other than God. Attractions and distractions other than the true God motivate and master us. One way to identify your gods, you know, with a small g, is to observe your reaction when you don't get your heart's desire or when that desire is taken away. You'll know because you'll become self-pitying and bitter instead of submitting to God and longing for his likeness. Another way to know your idols is to know your own thoughts. For as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart or your mind be also. We treasure most what we think about most of the time. What do you spend most of your time thinking about? He says, these are the gods that draw us away from God, the true God. End of quote. That's something to think about. David Roper, R-O-P-E-R. Okay, let's move on now and look at um, their protection on their way to Bethel. And for this, we'll just look at verse 5 where it says, And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. If you want to write in the margin, small miracle right there. (laughs) After Jacob successfully rid his household of all the idols and everyone cleansed and purified themselves, they set off on their journey to Bethel. Now that Jacob had experienced revival in his heart and a cleansing of his home, guess what? He had power over his enemies. Matthew Henry comments on this. He pointed out that when sin existed in Jacob's house, Jacob was fearful over his neighbors. All you have to do is look back at verse 30 of the previous chapter to see his fear. So when sin existed in in him and in his home, he was fearful of his enemies. However, now that the idols had been put away, who was afraid of who? His neighbors were afraid of him. We don't know because the scripture doesn't tell us. Um, so we don't know how God managed to put terror terror into the hearts of the uh, Canaanite peoples. You know, the peoples of the cities all around them. But somehow he did. I don't know what God did. Whether the people were able to see a mighty angelic host or or what, but he performed some kind of a miracle because those people were ready to just attack and kill all of Jacob's family. And yet, for some reason, they had a terror of God and they did not pursue them. It says uh, nobody had the courage to pursue Jacob as he made his journey from Shechem to Bethel. Now, John Butler, who also has a wonderful commentary on the life of Jacob, he says this, Safety only comes with obedience. To the natural mind, it may have seemed safer to stay put at Shechem than to venture out in the open on the road to Bethel. But it is safer, you've all heard this, it is safer to be in the will of God in a place which man considers dangerous than to be out of the will of God in a place which man considers safe. End of quote. 
Okay, moving on, let's go to Jacob's arrival at Bethel and what goes on while they're there. And under this section, we're going to look at four subdivisions. We're going to see deity's presence at Bethel, Deborah's passing at Bethel. She dies. Who's Deborah? We'll find out. Um, we'll find. We'll read about the divine promises given at Bethel, and then we'll look at Jacob's dedication pil- pillar at Bethel. So let's begin with deity's presence at Bethel, verses 6 and 7. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is, Bethel, he and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. Because of God's divine protection, Jacob and his household were able to arrive safely at the little city of Luz, L-U-Z, which God, uh, Jacob had renamed Bethel. And there he finally did what he had promised God that he would do some 30 years earlier. He built an altar there and he probably also built some kind of a structure around the altar so that he actually built the house of God. What does Bethel mean? The house of God. And what's interesting to find in verse 7 is that Jacob then called the place where he had built this worship center El Bethel. Because now, instead of focusing simply on the place, remember the last time he was there at Bethel when he had the dream of the ladder reaching up into heaven, he was, he was amazed at that place. So he called it Bethel, the house of God. Now, you see, his focus is not on the place, the house of God. Um, it's, his focus is on the God of the house of God. And that's what El Bethel means. God is at both ends, El and El, God, the God of the house of God. So Jacob had, uh, he had come around to, to focusing on God, which is good. Jacob had influenced, finally, he had influenced his household for good when he took them to Bethel and built a worship center there and then had everybody focus on God, not the place. You know, we're never to reverence, well, we're, we are to reverence the place to a degree, but it's not the place that we worship. It's the God of the place, right? This is the house of God, but it's God we worship. So although scripture doesn't specifically say so, we do know that the people did worship God there and they sought his forgiveness and they thanked him for his mighty deliverance from their enemies. And don't you think that seeing the Shechemite women and children that saw how God miraculously protected Jacob as they um, went those 15 miles, don't you think that was a real testimony to them? I just wonder if many of them did not come to a knowledge of the true and living God through that. I certainly hope so, and I would imagine that now that Jacob is back right with God, that, that they would see the true and living God in him. And I hope many of those women and children who had lost their husbands and their sons and their brothers, that they were saved. So it was a time of revival, not only for Jacob, but also for his entire household. Okay, that's deity's presence. Let's look at Deborah's passing in verse 8. But Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. Now, who was Rebekah? Jacob's mother. Yeah, Jacob's mother. Um, Her nurse, Deborah, died. And she was buried, here's the second burial, beneath 
Bethel under an oak. They must have had a lot of oaks in that area. And the name of it was called Alan Bachus. During his first, oh no, that's the wrong place. I'm reading Divine Promises. Okay, let's go to Deborah. Back in chapter 24, verse 59, we learned that when Rebecca, Jacob's mother, had left Haran and her brother Laban to go with Abraham's servant, Eliezer, to marry Isaac, that she had taken someone with her. It said she had taken her nurse with her. This woman, this nurse, was the servant woman who would have been with Rebecca probably from the time of her birth. And now we learn in this current passage that her name was Deborah. We also learn that Jacob had, at some point in time in the past ten years, obviously returned to Hebron, to his father and mother's home. Now, it's not recorded for us, but I guess at some point in time he must have gone back there because this would be the only way to explain why Deborah was now with him in Bethel when she died. On one of his visits to Hebron, Jacob had probably asked Deborah to come and live with him. With his mother gone, Rebecca was deceased, you know, somewhere along the line she, she had died. Deborah, Deborah, her nurse, was probably not needed any longer, you know, in Isaac's camp. And so Jacob, who had known her all of his life, obviously wanted her with his family, not only to have someone to talk to who knew his mother. I mean, Deborah knew his mother better than anybody. And he missed his mother. And so Deborah and him could have, none of his wives, none of his children had known his mother. So he had someone to talk to about his mother. And that was important to him. But also, don't you think that she probably served as a type of grandmother figure to his children? For a servant's death to be mentioned in the scripture, and even the place of her burial to be memorialized with a special name that really tells us that Deborah was not only dearly loved by Jacob, but it also indicates that she must have been quite a woman. You know, I think it indicates her excellent service and her character. Deborah would have had to have been very old by the time of her death. Obviously, I mean, you know, if, if she was Rebecca's nurse from the time she was born, and now Jacob is about 107, yeah, somewhere around 107. They figure that this woman, Deborah, must have been somewhere around 170 years old. That's a pretty long life, would you not say? Perhaps the journey up the 1,000 feet, you know, from Shechem to Bethel was more than she could handle. I don't know. I really don't know what she died of. But at any rate, she was lovingly buried by Jacob under an oak tree, and he named that burial spot Alan Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. It might tell you that in your Bible footnote. So obviously there was a lot of grief, a lot of weeping that went on there. Probably not only did Jacob weep, greatly for her, but she had probably grown very um, uh, loved by his wives and his children as well, and probably some of the other servants. So um, they definitely missed Deborah. And if your name is Deborah or one of your children, she was a good woman, so that's a good name. 
All right, let's look at divine promises at Bethel. And for this, we'll read verses 9 to 13. And Jacob appeared unto, I mean, and God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob, thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty, that's the name El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee I will give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. And God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. During Jacob's first experience in Bethel, Jacob had beheld in a dream God standing at the top of a ladder which reached into heaven. You remember that? Well, on this second occasion in Bethel, the Lord appeared again to Jacob, and he blessed him. The first part of God's blessing was the reaffirmation of his changed name. You know, it had been some ten years since the Lord had wrestled with Jacob, had defeated him, and then had renamed him Israel. That had been 10 years earlier from this scene where we are. And during those 10 interceding years, Jacob, we found, had not lived very much like Israel, his new name. He had not lived very much like the Prince of God. But now that he was back in Bethel, and had refocused himself on the Lord, he was graciously reminded of his new name. God had not forgotten Jacob's new name, nor had he decided that Jacob did not deserve that new name. I mean, that's, that's a good reminder for us, isn't it? Even though we might be called Christian, sometimes we don't act like Christians, do we? But aren't you glad that God doesn't take that name away from us? (laughs) That once saved, always saved, we are always his child. You cannot lose your salvation if it's genuine and real. Well, the name change reminder indicated God's plan, you see, to elevate Jacob by refining out of his character the old Jacob features. He's going to refine him and truly make him Israel, a prince with God. Then, in addition to his reminder of his new name, Israel, the Lord reminded Jacob of his name, of God's name, El Shaddai, God Almighty. That's the name for God which speaks of his all-sufficiency. El Shaddai is the God who is enough for all, all, all circumstances. He is all-bountiful. Having lost his dear mother, you know, Rebecca. And then his beloved um, mother figure, Deborah, and soon to lose his greatest love, Rachel, and then to be greatly grieved by the sin of his oldest son, Reuben, and one of his concubines, Bilhah, which we're also going to look at this morning, and then a little bit after that to lose his son, Joseph, And then after that, to lose his father, Isaac. Did you know that Isaac was alive when Joseph was sold into slavery? 
you do the figuring, you find out Isaac was I found that out this week, and I did not ever know that. But Isaac was still alive. But all of these things are going to be happening soon in Jacob's near future. So he needed to be reminded that God would be sufficient to see him through every one of these trials. And we need to remember God's all-sufficiency for us as well. I really need to remember it, especially after my day yesterday, that God is all-sufficient for all trials and troubles and tribulations and tears. He is. He truly is. Well, then in verses 11 and 12, God again promised Jacob that he and his multitudinous seed would possess the land just as he had promised his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. Nations and kings would be among his descendants. Of course, we know that even the king of kings would come from his descendants, the Lord Jesus. So at this point in time, uh, remember, how many sons did Jacob have at this point in time? Right, 11. And how many daughters that we know of? One. He, had, well, he may have had more, but the only one we know about is Dinah. So he had 11 sons. But one more was soon forthcoming. God was saying that he would abundantly bless all of them, which of course he did. Well, after reaffirming his covenant promises concerning the special lineage through which God's son would come into this world, it tells us that God went up from Jacob. This is an up chapter, isn't it? Jacob went up and God went up. He went up from Jacob in the place where he had talked with him, which was there at Bethel. So in other words, God departed from him, um, but in, in good terms. So then to commemorate and memorialize the place where God had once again met with him and revived his heart and soul, Jacob set up a pillar, just as he had done some 30 years earlier with his stone pillow. Remember, his pillow turned into a pillar. And this time, however, something new happens. If you look at verse 14, it tells us that he poured a drink offering Upon that pillar. Now, this is the first time in the scripture that the drink offering is mentioned. We read about it later in Exodus and Leviticus and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, but this is the very first time you ever read in the Bible about a drink offering. The drink offering, which generally consisted of either oil or wine, was to be poured upon the altar as a sacrifice. It not only served as a symbol of consecration or dedication, you know, the pouring out of a person's heart and life and, and soul, Every, the pouring out of a person, you know, to the Lord. That's what it symbolized. But it also was a prophetic type of the Lord Jesus Christ who poured out his soul unto death for us, right? Now, I don't know that um, Jacob would have understood the picture of Jesus Christ that his drink offering presented, but he did intend to demonstrate to the Lord God that he was willing himself to be poured out, you know, to be offered and sacrificed with his whole being in dedication to God. So he had placed God now at the center of his thinking instead of himself. So isn't this good? Aren't you happy for Jacob that after all he's been through, this ends, you know, our, le our study of his life ends on a good note. He does... Um, 
dedicate himself totally to God. Okay. Having lived there long enough to build both the altar and very likely some kind of a, a sanctuary of worship around that altar, then, and we don't know how long he was there, but eventually he again packed up everybody and began another journey southward. He presumably decided that it was time to go to his father's home in Hebron and spend what, whatever remaining years Isaac might have left with him. However, as is true with us, Jacob's renewed obedience and his spiritual revival did not mean that he would not experience new troubles and new trials and new tears. I mean, sometimes we will find that right after we rededicate ourselves to the Lord, that's when Satan really loves to attack. And so we're going to find that he does, and I'm not saying this is necessarily Satan, although some of this is pretty bad, so I know it came from, not from the Lord, but um, this doesn't mean that he didn't experience new troubles, trials, and tears. In our consideration of the next set of verses, 16 to 29, which we'll look at in part three, from Bethel to Hebron, we're going to learn of at least three episodes of troubles, trials, and, and tears in the life of Jacob. Now, and I have called them just for outline purposes, although this fell pretty neatly into the R's and the B's. We're going to call them uh, Rachel and Benjamin. He loses Rachel, you know, when Benjamin's born. And then we're going to look at Reuben and Bilhah. Not a, not a good picture there. And then we'll finish with Jacob's new responsibility and another burial, the burial of his father Isaac. So let's look, first of all, at Rachel and Benjamin, verses 16 to 20. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. As Jacob and his family and his household were on their journey from Bethel southward, we're told that Rachel, who was now pregnant, went into labor, hard labor. They were but a little way before the town of Ephrath, which is better known as what? Bethlehem. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but in the Bible there are, or back in Israel of those ancient days, there were actually three Bethlehems. And um, that's why in the prophecy that we read about in Micah 5.2 concerning Christ's birthplace is specific to tell us which Bethlehem Bethlehem he would be born in because there were three of them it was Bethlehem Ephrata which is the same as, as we see written here Ephrath he was born in Bethlehem Ephrata so it was just outside this same future birthplace of Jesus Christ that Rachel went into travail and hard labor and gave birth to her second son and Jacob's twelfth son As Rachel was in the process of her hard labor, the midwife spoke to her, obviously, prophetic words. 
you know, the midwife, God used her mouth to speak these prophetic words. She said, fear not, fear not, thou shall have this son also. Rachel was obviously um, concerned that she was going to lose this child. And remember before when she um, had Joseph, she named him Joseph because in effect it meant not only to take away but to add to. And she said, God will give me another son that was faith. Well, it had been many, many years, and she hadn't had another son. So um, she was concerned, but the midwife spoke God's words to her and said, you will have this son. Now, very possibly, this was a premature delivery, because I just can't imagine that if she was near her due date, that Jacob would have picked up and moved to Hebron. I'm sure this was premature. He did not. He probably expected to get her to Hebron before she went into labor. So Rachel, after years of being barren, remember she had given uh, birth to her first son, uh, Joseph. And um, as I said, at that time she expressed her faith that God would give her another son. And now this is approximately 15 years later that she had the second son. So how old would Rachel be? Well, we don't know, but she, if Jacob was about 107, she was pretty old. So um, it's not surprising that she was having difficulty in birthing her second son. In fact, what happened? She died in giving birth to him. Her final words, and I love this, it says, as her soul was departing. You know what that tells us, that little phrase right there? It tells us that, yes, the body might die temporarily, but does your soul die? No. Your soul departs. You know, you go on living. There's no such thing as your soul sleep. And even your body, if you know the Lord, is going to be resurrected and glorified, you know. But as her soul is departing, she spoke in uh, words in sorrow. She, she named her son, and it wasn't a very happy name. She uh, made a request that her son be called Benoni, which means what? Son of sorrow. She, she, was, she spoke those words in sorrow because she was sad. She wasn't going to be around to help raise this little boy. But Jacob realized that the, the name Rachel gave to their newborn son would be a very difficult name for that boy to carry around for the rest of his life because it would constantly remind him that his birth caused his mother's sorrow, his mother's death. So, and it really was a name of, of misfortune and pessimism, which Jacob did not want for his son. So, for the first time, Jacob actually named one of his children. He never had been involved in their names before, so this is the one child he names. And he, he changes his name from Benoni to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. That's a lot more uh, of a favorable name, isn't it, for the boy? It would remind him that he was a blessing more than a curse. He was the son of his father's right hand. It signified an honored position in the family. It's significant, and we talked about this in one of the wonderful lessons that we had about how significant the names of Jacob's 12 sons are. And if you missed that lesson, I don't remember what number it was, but it is powerful because, you know, God's word is, is really mighty. And how all of those names picture the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive plan for us. But uh, we talked about how the two names that were given to Benjamin, one by his mother and one by his father, were actually two names which prophesied of the Lord Jesus Christ. Benoni 
speaks of the price of redemption. Christ, first of all, had to be a man of sorrows, as he's called in Isaiah 53.3. He had to, to die in order to be our Savior, right? It was, a you know, son of sorrows, man of sorrows. But on the third day, following his death, as you all know, he was resurrected. And later he triumphantly returned to heaven to sit where? At the right hand of his father, Benjamin. So his, uh, his, resur- his not only his death, but his resurrection were prefigured for us in the name, in the 12th son of Jacob, the name Benoni and Benjamin. And that, that's really neat. Well, as another, what? 69. Okay, that was Lesson 69 if you weren't here to hear that. It was real, it's really, really worth getting that tape. It's fantastic. Well, as another footnote, we should point out that Matthew 2.18 draws a definite connection between Jeremiah's, you know, the prophet Jeremiah, his reference to Rachel's burial place and King Herod's horrible slaughter of all the innocent male children of Bethlehem at the time of Christ's birth. Remember, he had all the male babies from two years and under killed. And Jeremiah draws a connection between that and Rachel's burial place. The scripture states that Rachel... Remember, now she's buried, she was buried right outside of Bethlehem, that Rachel could actually be heard weeping for her children who were murdered there in Bethlehem. So the birth of Jesus, just as with the birth of Rachel's second son, brought both sorrow and joy, you know, Benoni and Benjamin. Innocents died, but the Savior of the world was born. It was also a mixture of sorrow and joy for Jacob. Rachel had been the love of his life. How many years, in effect, had he worked for her? Not really just seven. He really worked all 14 in order to get her. Even many years later, as he was failing in old age, he remembered his great love for for Rachel and the sadness that he experienced at the time of her death. You can look at those words in Genesis 48, verse 7. So here we find that he honored her by setting up a pillar on top of her grave, which was still standing, Moses tells us, when he wrote this account of Genesis. Actually, when I went to Israel, they showed us Rachel's tomb there right outside of um, Bethlehem. And I remember seeing it, and I remember what it looked like and taking a picture of it. Although Jacob's pain was probably almost unbearable, yet the Lord was with him. He was revived spiritually, remember. He had drawn closer to God at his experience there in Bethel, and therefore he was able to trust God for his strength in this time of grief and go on. He was now Israel, remember, which means prince of God, or it can also mean one who strives and prevails with God. So the strength which is which is his Following this time of sorrow for him is actually shown to us in chapter 30, well, this chapter, verse 21, because it says, and Israel journeyed. Who journeyed? Jacob? No, it says Israel journeyed. When Jacob's new name is mentioned in the scripture, it's significant. 
because it's telling us here that he was able to go on because he understood that the eternal God was his refuge and underneath him were his everlasting arms. And that's how we are able to face times of sorrow in our lives as well, right? After losing my mother, it's, it's because of the Lord's presence in my life and his strength that I'm able to go on. Same with you when you've lost a loved one in the Lord. He carries us, right? He's the one that carries us. And thank goodness for that. Okay, let's look at Reuben and Bilhah, verse 22. It says, uh, did I read verse 21? I'm not sure I had. That's where it says, and Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. That shows us that he went on. His name there, note that, is Israel, not Jacob. That's after Rachel's death. Okay, and then verse 22. And it came to pass when Israel, or Jacob, dwelt in that land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard it. Who heard it? Jacob? No, Israel. This tells us he heard it, and he responded rightly to it. Okay? And then it's going to go on and tell us about the sons of Jacob. So we really just read the first part of that, verse 22. Reuben and Bilhah. Anyone who teaches that dedication and commitment and surrender to the Lord will definitely keep a person from experiencing troubles and trials and tears simply has not carefully read the Bible. Would you not agree? I mean, you know, they, you'll hear people on TV and everywhere that say, you know, if you accept Christ, your life will be wonderful from there on. That is simply not true. It was certainly not true in the life of Jacob. In fact, it almost seems that once he finally did get himself right with the Lord and back on track spiritually, that the troubles, the trials, and the tears even increased. Sometime following not only the death of Deborah and then the death of Rachel came a sadness which was even more heartbreaking than death. Are there things that are more heartbreaking in our lives than losing a loved one? Absolutely, you're right, LaVon. Jacob's, can you imagine this one? Okay, his oldest son, Reuben, who would have been somewhere in his mid to late 20s, committed a horrible adulterous act against his father by having sex with his father's concubine or quote unquote wife Bilhah. Uh, Bilhah, if you will remember, had been Rachel's handmaid. When Rachel could not conceive any children, she didn't wait on the Lord, and she couldn't conceive, and she was impatient. She gave Bilhah to Jacob, and therefore Bilhah became the, the mother of two of Reuben's younger brothers, Dan and Naphtali. Now, there are several factors which indicate that this was not a rape situation. You know, when you teach the Bible, it's almost like soap opera time, isn't it? It seems like every week I have to get into something like this. But um, there are some factors that say this wasn't a rape, but was a sin performed between two consenting adults. Bilhah, Bilhah obviously had to be quite older than Reuben. You know, as I said, he was somewhere in his 20s, but her two sons were also somewhere in their 20s. 
So as one of the mothers of the patriarchal family, she had the authority and was therefore mature enough to have withstood any of Reuben's advances. You know, as an older woman, if a young man is advancing towards you and you, you know, especially if you're the matriarch of the family, you certainly know how to stop that kind of wrong behavior. Uh, furthermore, as one of Jacob's wives, she, she would have immediately reported Reuben's inappropriate behavior toward her to him, right? She would have said, your son has gotten out of line. I mean, you know, she definitely would have. And, and, and Reuben would have understood her potential to get him into serious trouble. So he would not have advanced toward her if he thought there was any risk that she's going to squeal on him. So obviously, you know, she didn't. So we know that this was between two consenting adults. And it tells us that Jacob, or really it tells us Israel, heard of it from someone who eventually saw what was going on, you know, got wise to to what was happening here, and he, he got wind of this. Now, we don't know why this incestuous and adulterous relationship occurred. It could be that both parties were simply attracted to one another. Now, remember... People didn't age like, like we do now. So even though she was quite a bit older, she still could have been very attractive. Reuben was not married at this point, and, and yet he's in you know, the prime of his life. He's in his mid-20s or uh, later 20s, and perhaps he just lusted for Bilhah. Um, and then she may have been physically neglected by Jacob for years. Or we would, wouldn't you think that she would have had more than two sons? She had those two sons early, and then all these years she's probably been neglected. So perhaps they both felt neglected by Jacob, who may have been focused on the loss of Rachel and the care of of her two sons, Joseph and Jacob. Now, I mean, Joseph and uh, Benjamin. We know from later chapters that Jacob was focused on those two sons, right? And there was some bitterness that was felt by the other sons. So Reuben may have purposely seduced Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, in in some kind of an effort to hurt his father for not having properly loved him, or maybe because he hadn't properly loved his mother. Now, who was Reuben's mother? Leah. At any rate, we do know that his action was a very, very serious sin. Regardless of his motive, he and Bilhah were both wrong. And it cost Reuben the rights of the firstborn. He was the firstborn. Those rights would have gone to him. Um, You know, the double inheritance and all that would have gone to him. But instead, the double inheritance were were given to who? No. Joseph. The double inheritance was given to Joseph. You know, both of Joseph's sons received inheritance. So he got the double inheritance. Now, who got the birthright privilege? That's Judah. So both those things were taken from Reuben. And uh, he, he was disqualified from having been an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. So did he suffer for this sin? He surely, surely, surely did. We always do. You know, be sure your sin will find you out. Why did it have to go to to Judah for uh, Jesus Christ to come through Judah? Judah was the fourth son. Okay, we find that Reuben has just been disqualified. And who was the second son? 
Simeon, and the third son was Levi. They were murderers, and so they have been disqualified. So the Lord Jesus Christ came through the fourth son. Now, he wasn't too great there for a while either, but uh, the Lord in his mercy sent Jesus Christ through Judah because Judah did truly, truly repent of things. Well, anyway, that's another story. Now, most commentators at least mention the idea behind Reuben's action with his father's concubine um, was his at his um, aspiration to take over the leadership from Jacob before Jacob died. For a son to take his father's concubine or his father's wife, that was in the Bible, and we see this repeatedly um, over and over again, that was his way of showing that he was uh, declaring that he was the new head of the family. As we learned in the incident with the rape of Dinah, Jacob had been taking an increasingly lower profile in the affairs of the family. You know, he had really turned that whole situation over to his sons, which had been wrong. And and he was getting older, so I guess that Reuben somehow figured it was time for him to take over as the leader of the family. And so this may well be what he was really purposely doing when he seduced um, Bilhah. But it's interesting to find that even though, um, even when Jacob or Israel heard about this sin, he didn't say anything. Although he was apparently um, hurt, very, very hurt, and obviously probably had the relationship ended right there on the spot, yet he didn't say anything. It really wasn't until many, many years later when he was a very old man and it came time for him, for Jacob to announce the honors that would go to his 12 sons. You know, he was speaking for the Lord. He was speaking prophetically. It wasn't until that time that he announced Reuben's loss of the firstborn privileges. And that you will read about in chapter 49, verse 4. Well, even though the news of the incest of Reuben and Bilhah, as I said, had to greatly grieve and hurt and shame a man, who was already hurting from the death of his wife, yet we are told the news that this reached the ears of Israel. And that's our little clue that Jacob received the news in the strength of his new name, Israel, and his new submitted character. Therefore, he was able to cope with this situation, and he was able to keep himself right with God. Perhaps, I think, perhaps the greatest sorrow that can grip the heart of a parent is when a son or a daughter commits some vile sin which embarrasses or shames the family. How many of you would agree with that? What What a sorrow, what a knife piercing into the heart of a mother or a father when a child does that to the family, hurts you like that. Yet as we see in Jacob, God is sufficient He is El Shaddai. He is sufficient to see a parent through even such a time as this. He can relieve the heartache. He can strengthen that parent to go on. And he can be merciful in his grace for such special, special hurts and circumstances. Well, there was yet a third trial awaiting Jacob. um, And let's look at it real, real quickly. This is the responsibility and the burial. It says in verse 22b, Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. 
And then it lists them, okay, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, Gad, and Asher, these are the sons of Jacob, which were born to him in Padan Aram. That is the first complete list of the 12 tribes of Israel. Before Benjamin wasn't named, now he is, okay? And in verse 27, and Jacob came unto Isaac his father, unto Mamre, unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron. Three names for the same place, Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And the days of Isaac were 104 score years. How old is that? 180. Isaac is 180 years old, verse 28. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. That's an expression for... Um, the fact that he was saved, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Isn't it good to see Esau and Jacob are still reconciled? They're still, I mean, doing, they buried their father together. Well, I don't really have time to go over all this, but basically what this is telling us about is the fact that Jacob has responsibility. He is now going to take over as the third official in charge patriarch of the nation of Israel. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to take the baton from Isaac. You know, it had been passed from Abraham to Isaac. Now, Isaac is a very, very old man. <laughs> I mean, he was old when Jacob left many, many years earlier, so you know he's really old. Well, he is. You know, he's about, when Jacob returned to him, he was about 168 years old. And he lived another 12 years. So Jacob actually lived with his father, Isaac, for another 12 years. That's interesting. Um, And during those 12 years, that is when the brothers hated Joseph and they, they threw him in a pit and they sold him into slavery. And so Isaac knew about that sorrow as well as Jacob. So all of that is very interesting. Well, despite many lapses into sin, you know, even such sins as blasphemous lying and deception, sins such as bigamy, taking more than one wife, and parental favoritism, and disobedience, and, and poor fatherly skills, and, and poor husbandly skills, and other failures, yet... In spite of all those things, we find that Jacob, or Israel, continued to seek God. He wrestled with God, and he struggled for his own will and his own way. But in the end, glory be to God, he was obedient. He repented of his sins, and he returned in faith and patience to the promised land to take over his duty before God as the third patriarch of God's chosen people. As God would continue to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant promises, he was to focus on Jacob and upon Jacob's 12 sons. And their story picks up in chapter 37 and continues through the end of the book, chapter 50, centering, of course, on Joseph, one of the sons, who, just like Jesus Christ, was instrumental in bringing all of the sons to repentance and true salvation. All 12 sons are in heaven. And that's a great note to end on, isn't it? Thank you for your patience. Thank, I mean, really, patience this year with a very disrupted year. 
but I appreciate and love every one of you, and I hope we can all come together next week and celebrate and hear from you. Okay, let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for what you have taught us this year. We th- I thank you for the lessons of life that you have taught me, even uh, just through circumstances, and, I, and they have been many. I have really, really grown this year, Lord. Thank you for being there. Thank you for being El Shaddai, the all-sufficient God, the God who is enough for all circumstances, that uh, you are there even when doing right is goes against the crowd, you know, as uh, we see with Jacob having to, to cleanse the camp of the idols. And you're there for circumstances such as death and the sorrow that we faith, face as we, as we lose loved ones. Um, You are there when um, uh, sin prevails. It seems like it prevails and it brings deep sorrow and grief into our lives, such as uh, the fact that you were there for Jacob to encounter the grief of his daughter being raped and his sons becoming murderers and his other sons being looters. And you were there when his oldest son, oh my goodness, I think if I have problems, wow, when his oldest son... um, had incest with one of his wives, my goodness, and yet you were there and you were faithful to Jacob through all of that. And you were even merciful and long-suffering with those sons because you, in the end, you saw to it that every single one of them came to know you. And Lord, we just love you. We thank you so much for the many, many truths that you teach us through your word. We do love you. We thank you so much for sending the Lord Jesus Christ through this special family into the world that he might take our place on that cross and die die for us so that each and every one of us one day might get to personally know Jacob and his 12 sons as we spend eternity together with them. Lord, I love you. I pray that you go with each woman. Keep her safe this week. Maybe she, she be salt and light for you. Bring us back safely next week for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.